Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I'd like to remind you for one thing make sure you check out wealthformula.com. Tons of resources there. And one of the things that you can do is sign up for our accredited investor group. And that is a group where the magic happens. That's where you see some of these concepts and strategies that we talk about coming to, uh, to the real world. And uh, so that's where you get deal flow, et cetera. If you are an accredited investor, check that out and join the party. Now, again, what's an accredited investor? Yeah, you either are one, you are not one. That's all there is to it. You either have $200,000 per year, 300,000 of filing jointly or a million dollars outside of your net worth. It's not something you have to sign up for. You either are one or not. So if you are, sign up and join the party. Speaking of parties, we have our event coming up, our Wealth Formula Meetup, Wealth Formula, uh, the 2.0 uh, event in Dallas, Texas, coming up September 27th and 28th. There are a handful of spots still available. So if you're planning to come out, sign up now, wealthformulaevents.com. And, uh, and uh, we'll be happy to have you out there and join the party because that's really what it is. We have this really cool uh, faculty and staff with some great talks. Um, and then we go on a field trip and we look at a bunch of buildings. Then we have cocktails and we start out with cocktails too the night before, by the way. So it's uh, a lot of that. And the thing that people liked about it the most last time when we did it in Scottsdale was meeting one another. Huge opportunity to do so to network. Check that out, wealthformulaevents.com. Now, let me get on with today's show. You know, uh, you know, all, all the time when you when you listen to the podcasts in this area, in this niche, a lot of them, you hear the same thing because that's what happens when you stand in an echo chamber. You know, you hear that the market's hot, you know, and um, and the question is, are real estate, equi real estate and equity prices too high? Um, you know, invariably you're hearing that these days. In fact, I can honestly say that I've been hearing that for the last three or four years now. Now, I'm not saying it's not hot. I'm not saying that there may not be a correction. What I am saying is that my, uh, my initial response to this impending zombie apocalypse a few years back was just stop deploying capital altogether. And that frankly was a mistake because while well, those of us listening to Chicken Little sat on cash and, and just, you know, kept waiting for the sky to fall, other people out there who were not doing that were making hand over fist profits uh, over the last three or four years. So who's to say that people sitting on cash three years from now may not look back at you know, the time that we're in right now and say the exact same thing. It's a, it's frankly just very, very difficult to time the market. So if that's the case and you know that, you know, these markets do seem a little heated, but at the same time, you don't want to lose out. What do you do? Um, you know, after all, if you lose money by not deploying cash and letting inflation eat away at it, then, you know, that's not good either, right? But then, but then on the other hand, you're worrying about deploying capital into an overheated market and then potentially losing money because of that. Of course, there are options that will allow you to sit it out uh, probably in a more productive way 
rather than just being in cash. I mean, a good option, for example, if you're really worried, um, in my opinion, is wealth formula banking. Um, obviously, you know, you're, you're stacking away liquidity, but you're actually growing at a big clip and it's compounding and it's pretty much guaranteed. Um, however, if you're like me, you're not completely sold on the idea that there's not growth out there because I think the other way to deal with this issue is simply to be selective about where you deploy your capital. So let me give you an example. For those of you in Investor Club, and you know, uh, you know that I am uh, deploying capital heavily right now. I am deploying probably as much as I ever have. Why? Well, the projects we're doing right now, specifically in multifamily real estate, are not, you know, buy and hope. You know, they're, that's not the strategy, buy and hope. I've done that before. And when I bought properties back in 2012 and 13, I made tons and tons of money when I sold those things last year. That's not where we're at in the economy. And, and, and that, frankly, is not a good strategy if I am going to be truthful about it for any time because it's just a waste of resources. You really should be trying to constantly improve your assets. So what we're doing with all these properties in Investor Club is we are buying heavy value add properties and budgeting significantly upfront for capital expenditures, right? We're not, we're not just hoping to, you know, make cash flow pay for all that. Uh, we aren't relying on appreciation to increase the value of properties. That's the bottom line. What we're doing is we're creating value through forced equity and doing so by creating equity, by increasing net operating income, what we do is effectively deleverage ourselves and perpetually de-risk our assets. If you didn't understand it, listen to it again, because that is really one really good way to potentially mitigate the risk of a market, uh, market cycle uh, turnaround. And that being said, am I afraid of an oncoming recession? Honestly, I'm really not. And uh, why is that? Why am I not afraid when the echo chamber continues to chant, you know, that the sky is falling? Well, because a recession and market cycles are just simply part of the business cycle, right? I mean, they just happen. We just happen to be in the longest economic expansion in the history of the United States. I fully expect a recession in the next few years. But remember, the thing that we seem to have kind of uh, screwed up on in terms of our thinking, in my opinion, is that recession does not necessarily mean zombie apocalypse, right? A recession does not mean that you have another repeat of 2008. We used to have recessions all the time. I remember back in like high school, not that it mattered to me, but I remember hearing about like, okay, we were in a recession and we heard about it like two months later, you know? I mean, that's what a recession used to be until 2008. Now we feel like every time we hear the word recession, it's like the end of the world coming. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, now, on the other hand, despite my belief that there probably will be some kind of recession, some kind of correction sooner or later, I'm also of the belief that the next decade will be one of tremendous prosperity and probably a lot of inflation as well. So that long-term perspective helps me to focus on the idea of buying high quality assets in good markets with the creation of equity through value add strategies, right? The idea here is that even if the economy slows and the markets correct a bit, you know, you can, this kind of approach is a pretty solid approach in my opinion, because the worst case scenario is that you would theoretically just kind of not grow for a while, right? And you would have an asset that was of value and maybe the growth would slow a little bit, but you wouldn't be sitting out the next decade, which is what I worry some people are gonna do if they wait much longer. Um, now, to me, in my opinion again, I'm not giving you advice, but that is actually a much more sound approach than just sitting on cash because then you sit on cash and inflation occurs. Basically, it's just eroding your wealth. So sitting on cash is 
a guaranteed way to lose money. Now, I should point out that when times are good, like they are apparently now, uh, it is also not a bad idea to take some of those profits off the table, right? I mean, if you're if you are riding high on something, you know, take some money off the table. Don't don't just leave it out there and wait for some correction. I mean, if you were lucky enough to buy real estate, multifamily real estate, for example, in the last five years, you're looking like a genius right now, right? I mean, seriously, how could you not look like a genius? And if you don't look like a genius after buying real estate in the last five years, stay out of real estate because that really doesn't get any better than this. But even if, if all you did was buy and hold, you very likely would have made significant amounts of money. So right now though, um, you know, you've got big money chasing yield. And so it's, it's not a bad idea to sell uh, if, you've, if you've built up some significant gains. And uh, by the way, that goes for businesses too. We have uh, a, a fair number of people within Investor Club who are having uh, big liquidity events by selling practices and businesses as well. I mean, now is probably a pretty good time to do that. Private equity is looking to invest in things and buy things. Um, of course, when we have those liquidation events, one of the things we really ought to be thinking about is how to legally keep more of the money that we're actually getting from that liquidation event. I mean, if you do nothing, you're going to end up paying a huge chunk of it to Uncle Sam. And well, that's going to rain on your parade. So for most people having liquidation events, though, they unfortunately don't have much knowledge or even, you know, the desire to really try to learn about some of the potential options they have to defer taxes. In fact, there's more than just, you know, this whole 1031 exchange thing that everybody knows about, or at least in theory knows about. There are multiple strategies to do, uh, you know, some kind of tax planning for large or, you know, any liquidation events. And that's what you're going to learn about this week uh, with my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Brett Swartz. He is the CEO of Capital Gains Tax Solutions. Capital Gains Tax Solutions helps investors and business owners maximize what they keep in their pocket after some kind of a liquidity event. And uh, Brett uh, has expertise in a number of different types of strategies, including deferred sales trusts, which we'll talk about, Delaware Statutory Trusts, and 1031 exchanges. He is also a real estate investor himself, so he's not coming at this completely as a theoretical thing. Um, and he also happens to be a commercial real estate broker. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Buck, for having me. So um, I want to talk to you first, just, you know, get a little bit of background, find out, you know, who you are, what you're doing, how'd you, how'd you get into the, you know, ultimately in this business of, uh, of deferred uh, trusts? Yeah, the deferred sales trust, right? Oftentimes it gets confused with the Delaware because they both have the DST acronym. So That's yeah, right. I started back um, originally in the Bay Area, Mission San Jose, building homes with my dad, learning about uh, real estate and investments and rentals. And I went on to college and I studied business. And at the time, I took an internship at a company called Marcus and Melichap, where we help people buy and sell apartment buildings. 
Um, and at the time, uh, we just did 1031 exchanges, and which were great, great vehicle to defer taxes on like kind real estate and a great way to build wealth. Um, however, along the journey, um, especially here in California, where I'm from, uh, there comes times when the marketplace doesn't make as much sense to do a 1031 when the prices are very high or clients were looking for an alternative. As a part of that, my manager brought in a gentleman who spoke about the Deferred Sales Trust, and that started the journey down this alternative to a 1031 exchange. I received my Series 22 and 63 licenses and started to help clients that use this structure about 10 years ago. And fast forward to where we are today, it's sort of the perfect storm of what's happening with the marketplace where it's hard to find value-add deals that make sense. And also people are selling businesses and primary homes which don't qualify for a 1031 exchange. Yeah. So this becomes a great um, option for those to defer tax. So let's, let's talk about the problem um, in general first. I mean, um, basically you help people with capital gains mitigate tax liability. Um, you mentioned business owners. So do you focus on real estate investors or business owners or both? Or what, what is your focus in particular? My focus is on the business professional, the trusted advisor, the business broker, the commercial real estate broker, the financial advisor, and the luxury real estate agent are the top ones. And our goal is to equip them with the tool so that they can go out and add value to their clients and help them when they go to sell and also grow their business. But oftentimes we'll have the client call us directly and we, we say, look, bring in your trusted advisor. Let's all work together to make sure as a team you're comfortable with the structure, the strategy, and how this all works. Uh, the big problem that people are faced is, is what's called the, I guess, the $17 trillion that's passing from one generation to the next in the next 20 years. And this is known as the baby boomers. And this is the largest wealth transfer in the history of the world that we know of. And in fact, there's about 77 million turning 60, uh, or in the U.S. alone, and about 10,000 every day turn 65. And they're faced with how to sell and get out and uh, get out of debt and diversify and become liquid without getting hammered by 30 to 50% of their gain. And so we use this deferred sales trust to give them uh, this uh, solution to give tax deferral, liquidity and diversification. Um, and they really feel trapped. That's the best part of what we do is we get people from, from, from uh, away from the feeling of being trapped in their asset or in their business and having to have employees and liability and the ever-changing regulations um, that especially here in California um, or just managing toilets and trash. And so we get them out of all of that and get them on the sidelines per se and completely passive in their own portfolio of liquid investments. Let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the different options out there. Let's start out uh, with the 1031 exchange. That's the one that most people who are uh, familiar with real estate uh, have at least heard of and they kind of understand it in theory, but would like you to just kind of go over it a little bit and kind of review it for us, if you would. Absolutely. 1031 exchange is a great tax deferral strategy. It's one of the most well-known, uh, but it's very particular. It's for really investment property, like-kind real estate. And this recent tax law has become even more restrictive to basically like-kind investment real estate. And it's where, you know, Buck, if you were to buy a property for a million dollars and you, you made a profit of, you know, up to, let's say, three million Instead of paying the tax, you can do what's called a like-kind exchange, and you can move those funds into another property within a short period of time, uh, 45 days to identify typically, and 180 days to, to close on those uh, properties. Most people choose the three-property rule, um, but the intent is just to keep the taxes deferred and earn more wealth on that next property. So I've helped people do 1031 exchanges. It's a great tool. Um, some of the shortcomings have to do with the fact that it is a short time period. And if you can't find a property that makes sense, you know, um, within that short period of time and you don't follow the rules, the exchange fails. So a lot of our clients feel rushed, trapped, forced to make quick decisions before they meet us. On the other side of the deferred sales trust, there's no timing restrictions. You can buy real estate whenever you want to because it's a different tax code. It's an installment sale versus 1031 exchange. The second thing with the 1031 exchange has to do with the depreciation schedule, it actually travels. One of the best reasons, Buck, to own real estate um, is the depreciation that offsets the income that's coming in, right? right. So, um, however, if you own real estate for long enough and do uh, multiple 1031 exchanges, eventually your depreciation can go to zero. And that's where a lot of our clients are facing who are long-term commercial real estate owners. And so if they were to trade, that schedule travels, which is not good. 
Um, the other side of it is the deferred sales trust. The funds can be directed to a trust and then directed to a commercial real estate deal. And then they can get a brand new depreciation schedule. Uh, and the last one has to do with just buying in a high marketplace. Yeah. Parents taught us to sell high or buy low and sell high and then buy low again. Well, the 1031, because it's that 180 days, you're typically selling high and buying higher again um, due to the low inventory. And sometimes with rising interest rates, you end up really in a tough spot. In terms of, uh, I think there's one other part that I think is interesting is that it, there's a requirement to have the same amount of debt. Is that right? Um, when you uh, when you transfer it, like uh, do a 1031 exchange? 100%, you're right. So the debt replacement, so you need to buy something equal or greater value, which often means you're actually taking on more debt because the property values are higher. And that's what happened in the 08 crash. A lot of my clients got hit in 05, 06, 07 trading up. They couldn't refuse that offer and they just rolled it into 1031 because they felt they had no other option. I didn't learn about this strategy until about 2009 on the Deferred Sales Trust. And then when the market shifted, they were hit. And the concept here I like to have my clients think about is the, the, the idea of dumb debt, risky debt, and smart debt. And dumb, uh, uh, smart debt, I think, takes on debt when the marketplace is low, when it's a buyer's market, when you can find a value-add play, forced appreciation, and make sense of a deal. I, I, California is about five years ago. You know, those were most of those deals, maybe three years ago, but it's kind of dried up this last couple of years. Every market's a little different. Risky debt stays in the property after they've added value. And if the market shifts, you're, you're risking some of that equity that you've gained over these last couple of years. And I would say dumb debt is sort of what happened in the 0506, where people double down and buy bigger and bigger properties and take on more and more leverage, even if they can't find a value add play there just to defer the tax. And then they end up getting hit if the market shifts. So I think you always got to consider how you're going to diversify or, and, and pay off that debt. And the Deferred Sales Trust, by the way, is we call it the Dave Ramsey Debt-Free Plan for your business or commercial real estate because at close of escrow, only the proceeds go into the trust. Therefore, you're debt-free on that particular asset, which is taking risk off the table for you. I want to go into the, um, uh, the uh, Deferred Sales Trust in, in detail in a second. But before that, let's just cover the other um, the other thing that you mentioned, which, you know, there's some confusion on is you, there's some, there's a fair amount of nomenclature in the space. And, uh, I had a show, uh, a, few, a couple months ago on a Delaware statutory trust, and that's basically a 1031 exchange as well. I mean, it's, um, you know, the difference is it's a, it's something that people can, uh, take their gains and, um, and then, you know, transfer into it, it, it sort of like a syndication, the downside there being that there really is not a whole lot of value add allowed in those kinds of things. Um, so the returns are going to be modest and you're basically going from one and then you're, you're ultimately, you know, when that fund ends, you'll need to look for another fund or buy another building. Is there anything else to add on that front? Yes. So non-liquidity, right? So typically yeah, you're moving into a mutual fund of properties, one to three properties. I've done Delaware's with clients in the past. They can really serve their purpose with mortgage over basis issues. If any of your clients have a mortgage over basis, um, there are some high LTV companies that we work with to distinguish that debt as a, as a form of a, a partial 1031 and a partial deferred sales trust. Um, but the non-liquidity is a big one for a lot of our clients. Right now, a lot of our clients want to be out of debt and they want to have the ability to access the cash. Um, now they'll pay the tax if they dip into the principal for our trust and or direct it to multiple commercial real estate syndications, not just one, two or three Delawares. Um, so for example, if you had a client who's selling a $5 million uh, business or property or primary home, uh, they can direct up to 80% of the funds into multiple commercial real estate syndications and multiple geographical locations. And the entity itself doesn't have to move into, it can move into all of them. It's, it's not a 1031, so we don't have to follow those rules. Um, so it gives you more flexibility. Whereas the Delaware, you're basically going to be tied up for typically seven to 10 years, non-liquid, and you're completely passive, meaning you're giving up all the control to the, to the manager. And you're right. Typically, they're very nice properties. Um, maybe some value add, but the returns are modest and the fees are pretty high. So let's talk finally about the deferred sales trust. Now, first of all, I need to clear up again, nomenclature in this space is, is tricky. There's um, I've heard of something also new uh, that's called a, a deferred installment sale. Is that the same thing as a deferred sales trust or is that a different animal? Not that we know of, and I haven't heard of quite of that one, but... Uh, Kind of installment sale. I'm sorry, maybe it's not uh, deferred. Yeah, there but is the monetized installment. Monetized installment, yes. 
Right. You use the IRC 453, which is the tax code. You know, what I would encourage your listeners to do whenever they hear this new strategy from this guy named Brett on the deferred sales trust or the monetize or any of these strategies, the number of questions you should ask is, first of all, what's the tax code? How do we know it's legal? How many IRS audits? Um, and, and how many of these have actually been done? And what have been the results of those audits? So um, our, our track record is a 23-year track record of over oh, close to 3,000 trusts that have been closed. Sure. 14 no change IRS audits. But that being said, we're not the monetized. I don't think they've been around as long. I don't know their history of the IRS. Um, Just for, for, for the level of completeness, can you talk about that in theory? And then we'll get into, you know, because I'm, what I'm trying to do here is kind of provide all these different, you know, uh, terms yeah. because I think there's a lot of confusion out there. But when you hear about a monetized into- installment sale, what, why don't you tell me what that is? And then we'll go directly into that. If- yeah. So it's a form of, a, of an installment sale. And again, I haven't done one of these, so I can only speak from what I've read online and, 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 the, and, the, and the general people I've talked with who are considering both sides, us or them. Uh, the, what I do understand is it's a 30-year term compared to ours, which can go on as long as you want. Um, they can pass on to your kids. You, so you can go every 10 years, you can go for 10, 10, 10, 10, and keep passing on to your kids and they can keep going. Whereas theirs is 30 years. Uh, their concept is giving 93.5% of the money up front, meaning you're taking actual, in our understanding, you're taking actual receipt of the funds, whereas ours, 100% of the funds or whatever funds you want to be deferred will go into the trust to maintain non-actual receipt. So those are some of the technical things. But they're both a form of installment sale. They're both a form of, of tax deferral. Um, but uh, we're just very cautious on, on, um, on their strategy for a number of reasons. And they're our competitor, but we, don't, we want to be careful what we say sure. uh, about, about what they do. No, I, I get it. And I, I think I'm just trying to, again, just for completeness, make sure that we cover all of the, the terminology. Um, sure. Let's talk about uh, let, let's let's define then the deferred installment sale as you do it, and then let's go back and since um, and then sort of compare and contrast with all of the strategies, if you would. That sounds great. Yeah. So the deferred sales trust is just a manufactured installment sale. It's based on IRSC four fifty three, which is just seller carryback law, which you know, Buck, and a lot of your clients probably do too. And if they don't, their CPA definitely does. And so how it works is, let's say, Buck, you were selling a property for ten million, and I wanted to buy it personally. And I came to you, Buck, and said, Buck, look, you own this property free and clear. Uh, you don't necessarily want to do a 1031 exchange. How about I give you a $2 million down payment and you carry a note for $8 million? In that scenario, Buck, how much actual receipt did you receive? Right, so $2 million. $2 million, right? So you owe tax on that. But if I came to you on another scenario and I said, Buck, how about I give you a zero down payment? Would you carry a note for 10? Now, hypothetically, if you did that, how much actual receipt did you receive? Nothing. Nothing. You got it. So enter the trust. So what we're going to do, Buck, is we're going to have a, a cash buyer lined up. They can get a loan. You're getting ready to sell your apartment complex for $10 million. It's all ready to go. What's going to happen is the deferred sales trust, you're going to, it's a brand new entity. It's a, it's a Missouri business trust. It only does business with you, Buck. It, you can call it Buck's deferred sales trust. It's going to jump in right before close of escrow, and it's going to buy your position for $10 million. Okay. Where does that money come from? That comes from the that comes from the buyer, obviously. Buyer's already there, yeah. So the buyer yeah. the buyer is about to buy it, right? But we're okay. going to jump in right between, mm-hmm. right before, and we're going to give you a note for ten million. The trust is going to give you a note. It's going to say, "We promise to pay you, Buck, ten million dollars. We're going to give you a zero down payment in exchange for this promissory note." Yeah. So I have no gain at this point. Got it. Well, you have right. a gain, and the taxes do. You just haven't taken actual receipt of the principal balance which is the trigger under IRC 453 for the tax being due in that given day or that year, okay? Now, immediately when you sell it to us for 10 million in exchange for that note, we're turning around for that cash buyer who's already lined up and they're actually gonna buy it from the trust. Okay. Okay, so the 10 million is gonna go into the trust. Mm-hmm. Now, Buck, if the trust bought for 10 million and sold for 10 million, how much tax does the trust owe? None. Right, because it bought and sold for the same price. Now, right. the buyer takes title the same way he would have. He's gone. He's clear. He's got the property. And the smoke settles, and you have a note for $10 million, and the funds are sitting where? Bank of New York Mellon, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade. You can hire your own financial advisor. By the way, we have, over, over, we have thousands of professionals across the U.S., CPAs, tax attorneys, financial advisors, who are all in their individual space, and they help their clients with this strategy. But you can hire your own, by the way. 
The funds only ever move with your signature. And uh, they can be directed like a SEP IRA in a sense, where you can kind of say, I like to have it in some, uh, some commercial real estate, some stocks, some bonds, some mutual funds. But the key thing here is you haven't touched any of the principal and you're living off interest payments. Most of our notes earn 8%. And after fees, they net you about 6.5%. So let's let's jump into some more detail there because that's where I'm going to come back on this a, a little bit. But first, let's, let's work with what we have. So now we've got $10 million sitting there. Um, you're, are you, this is effectively at this point, you know, like you said, a SEP or whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it has to be managed by, um, you know, some sort of trustee. And at this point we're focusing our money in traditional investments like equities and bonds. Correct. You can. Yes. So my role is I'm actually the trustee. That's actually my role. So I educate everyone on the strategy, but how we actually get paid at our company is uh, we're the trustee. So the trustee must be a third party unrelated trustee. Uh huh. So it can't be your brother, your, your sister, your cousin, and they have to be in it for business purpose. These are some of the IRS guidelines to make sure yep. this integrity maintains. Yeah. So the 10 million is there. And we're, we're kind of acting as like a custodian, if you will, yep. although our funds, are, our funds are, are, are always at the bank and always at the, with the investment advisor. Um, but, but Do you have to use, I mean, I guess one of the questions I have is, can you self-direct this? Like, in other words, you know, a number of our uh, investors, a uh, number of, of people in, in my group, they like to, you know, they have a self-directed 401k, QRP, whatever you want to call it, or self-directed IRA, and they're investing in real estate of their choosing. Is that, is that an option at that point? Or is that money sort of more in a traditional, um, you know, real estate advisor territory at that point or, 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 or uh, uh, not real estate, but just, you know, a, a registered uh, investment advisor. An RIA or a financial advisor. So right. it all depends. Okay. So the, the big answer is no, you can't self-direct it. Meaning um, you're, you're doing like an E-trade account or, or, you're, you're doing uh, some kind of form of, of, of day trading, right? It can't be that. That's, that's too much control. It must be a third-party unrelated trustee that maintains non-constructive receipt. It's kind of the same reason you can't 1031 into a primary home because you're really, you really have taken constructive receipt. It's no longer an investment purpose. So we got to maintain this thing now. However, you can form an LLC, Buck, tomorrow when you close the trust or day 181 or five years from now, and you can have the funds up to 80% can be into this trust of which you're the managing member of, and you're going to partner with your trust, all tax deferred to go buy your own property or put it into a syndication deal. Right. So in that sense, you've kind of got control again, right? Although you're just partnering with the trust. It's typically a 90-10 split with the trust. Okay. Even though the trust puts up a hundred percent of the funds, Buck, you have the sweat equity and you, you're the brains of the, of the, of the LLC. So you can do that. So in that sense, that's my favorite part because as a commercial real estate investor, for where my clients come from, we've made our wealth in commercial real estate, not so much in the stock market. Although, you know, I have an 80-20 type of, you know, balance for myself, but everyone's different. Some people may want to put 100% with a financial advisor and that's perfect for them. That's great. You know, um, some people want to put 50% in commercial real estate, but just not today, maybe tomorrow. The funds can also be directed to a, a lender who can, do, who can do hard money lending. Mm -hmm. They can also be directed to a business to open up a new business. They can also be directed to do a, a development. However, all that being said, there's a risk tolerance that's in the very beginning for the funds going anywhere, but you're going to fill out and based upon that risk tolerance will determine how and where the funds are invested. So my role as the trustee is to ensure we're paying you back that promissory note and our 23 year track record of all our advisors across the U S we have, we've been able to do that. And typically it's about an 8% return over 10 years. So we're all working together as a team. But where's um, that 8% coming from? Yeah. So based upon the investments over a 10 year period. So that, so, so that again, we're be, talking about the, you know, like again, and then at six and a half percent, cause you've taken a one, uh, it's basically 1.5%, um, management fee, right? So, so the, cash, the cash flow is, is six and a half percent over the life. But at the end of the term, um, going to net 8%. Okay. Going to net 8%. Mm -hmm. That's what our advisors have been able to do. Now, this is not, this is not. But that's not, historical data once again, and it's using the equity markets, um, you know, sort of like your typical uh, investment advisor would do, right? I mean, there's not like a, 
again, I'm just putting this in the context that most, you know, most of my listeners are not stock people, right? They're, they're real estate people. And, and so when we hear, you know, investment advisors saying 8% uh, or six and a half after whatever they say, well, okay, well, how'd you get that number? Just by hoping, right? And so, or, or historical data. And I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying, how do you get those? The answer is where, where are you putting the funds or what, what allocation yeah. are they? And as the credit score in this position, you have the options for how right. and where the funds are invested. And so, but we, yeah, the, the past performance is not, we can't predict the future results. Right. Based upon that, we, we, some years may be 12, some years may be four, some years may be 15, some negative four. The market's going to be the market, but the goal is to just defer and live off the interest. And by the way, at the end of 10 years, you can renew for another 10 years and keep this thing going. We define losing as paying the capital gains tax and yeah. winning is deferral and living off the interest. So, so at the yeah. end of 10 years, say you wanted to go back into a real estate project. Could you do that? Could you then complete that sort of, um, you know, say it was a, a 1031 that you wanted to do or whatever the case may be? Or would you pretty much at that point, if you're not going to renew this thing, you're going to pay capital gains? Uh, the latter. So it, it's not a frozen, you can't freeze a 1031 and then thaw it back out. That would be the best of both worlds. We, we yeah. can't do that. No, I get it. Yeah. I get it. So, so if you're, so theoretically, I guess what I'm trying to get at is if I'm a real estate investor, if that's really what I like to do, um, I'm saying, okay, well, about 80% of those funds I can borrow and I can direct into, you know, as a limited partner in syndications, which again is a big part of my group is, you know, investing it, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, syndications as accredited investors and they can do that. Um, and then would they is, and then obviously there must be some kind of nominal interest you'd have to pay back. Right. I mean, it's, is it just market rate? Um, you'd be paying yourself anyway. Right. So it wouldn't really matter. Right. You're, you're catching on, Buck. Yeah. So you're actually not borrowing from your trust. You're actually partnering with your trust. Mm -hmm. But you, we have to call it the GoFund yourself. You know how there's GoFundMe right. and you get yeah. other people to fund you? Well, you're using your own trust yep. to partner with your trust, which is going to fund, it can fund up to 100% of the down payment, of which it's a 90 10 split, which this is the next part for your listeners that they're, they're really going to like. It achieves a brand new depreciation schedule. Right. Okay. Of which you could do accelerated depreciation. You can add value. You sell for, let's say, a $2 million profit. What happens? Well, the original money goes back into the trust plus the preferred return, which we typically mirror the note, and then 10% of the upside. But the other 90% goes to you, Buck, of which you can do a 1031 exchange with, or you can roll it into the trust as well and do it all over again. Mm -hmm. And the key is it's optimal timing, okay? This is the biggest thing that is just, just I want your listeners to understand is you can get out of debt when the marketplace is really high and people are overpaying and interest rates are very low and, and inventory is very low and you can wait on the sidelines, you know, when, and buy whenever you want and diversify into as many deals as you want. And as long as it's within that 80% of the funds and that, that gives you a lot of, takes a lot of risk off the table and also gives you a lot, uh, I think we think a, a compelling advantage to create and preserve more wealth. And go what that when happens with the gains? What happens with the gains that are happening inside the trust? How are those taxed? Yeah, good question. So, so depending on what where it's at, and that would be the the brain surgeon CPA question on those particular details and your circumstance. So, my I like to say is my role is just the nurse. So I'll take right. the pulse. But before you get surgery, make sure you talk with the brain surgeon. Hey, bring your other brain surgeons in. So your CPA's tax attorneys. And on that level, you're going to want to, those are really detailed stuff that our CPAs can definitely answer. And I say our, they're not mine. Our, our company is separate from the law firm. The law firm is Campbell Law Firm. And we're, mm -hmm. we're just one of the exclusive trustees uh, for the estate planning team, which is the big membership organization. But yes, we can give consultation for all of that. And we don't charge it for that, by the way. We sure. only charge if and when the client closes the deal. Um, but uh, that would be broken down and, 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 and provided for with each particular case. So um, this obviously is, is you know, uh, and we can, we can uh, talk about uh, fees and that sort of thing a little bit in a minute. But one other, there's two other things, scenarios I want to talk about. And one is uh, frequently we see, um, we, you know, when we have property, we may have something, and you see this all the time, you bought something uh, for 
two million dollars, but you only you know you had a half you had a half million dollars in this thing and depreciated up uh, five ten years later, and you pull off a few million dollars, but you've got some debt to pay off. Mm-hmm. In that scenario, how would this work? Because now you've got debt to pay off, um, which is again most real estate, at least the way you know I've done it, and I know there's probably REITs and stuff out there that are buying multi, you know, multi-million dollar properties cash. But if you have debt on a property, how does that change the, um, you know, the flow of things here? Great question. And I think what you're referring to, Buck, is a mortgage over basis. So someone who buys a property of 500000 they add a bunch of value, they refinance and cash out additional cash above and beyond their basis. Therefore, that's called a mortgage over basis issue, right? right? We can't solve that with the deferred sales trust alone. In fact, that would be taxed at ordinary income. However, this is where we enter a buy, we call it a buy fractured 1031. We're gonna do a partial 1031 exchange via a Delaware statutory trust. And the remainder is gonna go into a deferred sales trust. So let's walk through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have groups, very large institutions who have uh, properties. Uh, Delaware deals with about 84% leverage, okay? So mm-hmm. you can put in a smaller amount to distinguish a big, big debt. And so we're doing a deal actually right now out of Georgia. The gentleman's selling a $7 million apartment complex. And he's going to do a th- basically a third, a third, a third. A third of it's going to go to the Delaware to distinguish this mortgage over debt. A third of it's going to go to a 1031, which he found a nice deal. And the remainder is going to go to the deferred sales trust. And so we like to call ourselves capital gains tax solutions. Although we focus like a laser on the deferred sales trust, we're going to provide the pros and cons of each, each scenario. And then we're going to give a solution for that. So we solve that with a Delaware high LTV for a portion of it. And the remainder goes into the deferred sales trust. Okay. I'm, I'm a little confused on that. So I better, I better tie in. It's not because of anything you're saying, but I think it's a of somewhat of a complicated situation. So let's talk about this. Again, I'm going to break it down. Say, I'm going to put this into a real, a real, um, you know, this is like somebody who's wants to do this and who's thinking about this, right? So say I've got, say I've got a property and um, I've just, it's a $2 million property. I've got a million dollars of debt on it. um, And I sold it for 4 million. Okay. So now 4 million so I've got a million dollars of debt on it. That needs to get paid mm-hmm. before I can do anything else. So now I'm down to three million mm-hmm. because that went straight to the that one million went straight to the bank to pay off the debt. Do I have any tax? Do I have any? I don't have any tax to pay there. No, or do, because your your basis is two million basis. is above right. your mortgage, so no issue there. Okay, we would just pay off the debt, and the three million would go into the trust. So now you're debt free from that property, and you're invested in whatever you want to invest in. Okay. So the 3 million that I have, can you explain to me like the, the concept of splitting that up between the Delaware statutory trust and the deferred tax sale? Then what, what would you put where and why? Okay. So again, if you didn't have any mortgage over basis issue, I probably wouldn't recommend a Delaware right now because the, you know, the price well, is very high. But most people do, right? I mean, that's that the, the reality is most people are not at least in my, my group don't aren't selling properties that they hold that they keep you know, free and clear. They're selling things that they have leverage appreciation on. Correct. So. Correct. Okay. So, um, so the answer is it's totally flexible. Okay. You could put right. 80% into a, into a deferred sales trust and 20, 10% to a Delaware, 10% to a 1031 exchange. Though? How would you make that decision? Okay. Um, so first thing we'd say, Buck, what are your goals, right? Well, where, where are you at? I don't want to pay tax. Now? That's my goals. Deferred <laughs> <tax>. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Deferred tax. So definitely use one, two or three. Okay, uh-huh. so when do we use a 1031? I, I personally, Buck, if I'm in your shoes, I use a 1031 when I can find a value-add forced appreciation opportunity, particularly mm-hmm. multifamily, senior housing, and mobile home parks. Those are my Got favorite, it. okay? I Got have it. some retail and mixed use, but mainly those three. Sure. Typically, it. B or better properties um, that are in you know good demographics, decent B locations. So if you can find that, yeah, those are it. the hardest no, I get to find. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I'm talking about the numbers here. Um, the the rest I can figure out, right? Okay. I, the rest I get. But what I, what I'm just saying is, from like you you mentioned um, 
that once you have debt on there, you can't just do the deferred sales trust anymore. And I'm trying to understand that part. Okay. So debt over the basis. Okay. So, so mm -hmm. that's the key. So let's imagine your basis was uh, zero. Okay. You've completely depreciated this for 30 years. You have that $1 million mortgage. Okay. Mm. So in that scenario, we need to replace that 1 million. So right. I would recommend Buck, we do a Delaware statutory trust to replace that 1 million. So 84% LTV. So what's it going to take to get that? So that's about, uh, let's say 1 million by 0.84. Uh, what? So about $260,000. So I would say buck out of your equity of that, of that, of the four mil of the 3 million, 260 is going to go to the Delaware. And that's so we can leverage the leverage used by the Delaware Statutory Trust to get us back to basis. You got it, boom, knock okay. that out, that's yeah. gone. Got it, understood. is gone of that equity to mm -hmm. that Delaware, which leaves us with, I'm on my HB12C here, so just give me a second, um, a 2.74 of which we could say, Buck, go for your 1031, go shopping, go for it. Wish you luck, if it works out, great. Or do the, Del the deferred sales trust. Correct. Right. Or right. just do a deferred sales trust, right? Okay. So but remember, we can save a failed 1031 exchange. So we want to empower you with the trust. You have the tool, go shopping, go negotiate, go find that deal. If for some reason it doesn't work out or you have some extra boot, that's when we can jump in. Um, yeah. No, this, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I'm just trying to, you know, um, uh, I was just trying to understand kind of what, you know, in practicality, how this all plays out because, you know, I think again, most of most of my listeners who've got uh, a property, they've got appreciated property that has debt on it, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, so I want to make sure we cover the nuances of that kind of thing. Um, now, one one other question is: Is there? Uh, can you think of any way? Because we've talked about businesses, we've talked about. Um, We've talked about real estate where you, you have debt or maybe you don't have debt. Is there any options for people who have got, uh, who are limited partners in real estate that you know yes. about? This yes. is a challenge that a lot of my folks have because as you may or may not know, I, I am in the business of real estate syndication and, and we have, we'll have investors who come out with a big pop, you know, um, they might have put in a hundred, they'll come out with a couple hundred or whatever, or, you know, 500 and they come out with a million whatever the case may be. And that is one of those pain points that it seems like for the most part, you know, in syndications, it's very, very difficult to do a 1031 exchange with limited partners. And so I often get this question, is there anything else we can do? And perhaps you can answer that. The answer is absolutely. So most commercial real estate syndicators, they struggle with capital gains tax when they go to exit their property. They struggle with the carried interest they have for themselves, plus mm -hmm. the equity they put in plus all of the other limited partners who, who put some money in too. And so most just decide just to everyone pay their tax and come to me for the next deal. And they go do it again. And, and that's, that works, especially if the numbers are going well, but there's a better way. It's the deferred sales trust. So let's imagine there's 10 of us and we all bought an apartment complex, right? Each, each of us can have our own deferred sales trust buck. So the 1031 exchange, the challenge is, the intent is, hey, if the entity could move, we get everyone to agree and it all works out with perfect timing, then great. But if some people don't want to do it, then it's a challenge. And they say they want their cash or whatever, right? So most people just say no. Yeah. Deferred sales trust solves that and that one, two, or three, or all 10 can do their own separate deferred sales trust. Half of them can pay the take, the take, take the cash and pay the tax. The other portion can do their own deferred sales trust. And then the beauty is the very next day, and hopefully you save each person about 40%, the very next day, they can direct it to your next deal. So it gives you the ability to not have to raise as much, but it also increases their overall return. So we like to say we eliminate the need for the 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. And okay. again, that would be through the mechanism of lending that 80 up to that 80%, correct? correct. And the other 20% is with the financial advisor, hopefully earning somewhere around eight, netting about six and a half. So they're still getting the cash flow off that. That's just a reserve for that 20% to make sure we can service the note. Um, but right, pay the tax and it's gone forever, defer the tax and earn interest on it. It's the same reason you do a 1031 is the same reason you do a deferred sales trust. Okay. Got it. So, um, let's talk about, uh, dollars and cents here. If I am an investor, um, cause we, we talked about that theoretical thing where now we've got, 
you know, we have the ability to use a, a deferred uh, sales trust to to help limited partners. But presumably, there's a there's a minimum. You know, if you have capital gains of obviously, you know, if you had a capital gains of like twenty thousand bucks, you're not going to do something like this. At right. one point, you you say, okay, this starts making sense. And what point is that? What's the ROI on our fees and what's, well, at what point does it make sense? Great question. So the typical minimums are $500,000 of proceeds mm-hmm. for every $100,000 in actual tax liability deferred. Okay, so $500,000 of proceeds into the trust after you pay up all the debt, closing costs for every $100,000 deferred. So if it was a $10 million deal, Buck, and you're only deferring $100,000, we're gonna say, Buck, just pay the 100000 Walk away with 9.9 and just sit on the sidelines and wait for a deal, right? You want a five to one improvement. Basically. That's about the ratio. That's about the ratio. Yeah. It's just give or take. You know, we've done some, some smaller, but our average deal is about 2.6 million and we're helping somewhere between, you know, 350 and 550 in tax, tax deferral, right? So it just, it all depends. It all depends. But right. if it's a primary home or it's a business, Right? They really have no elegant solution for tax deferral beyond the 121 exclusion for the primary home. And then we say, you know, and the numbers may change a little bit or if we're in a really, really tight fixed income, it may switch. For the exchange buyer, commercial real estate owner, those are typically the numbers. Got it. Got it. Well, I've put you through the ringer and I, you've, um, you've uh, done a great job of dealing with my uh, persistent questions. They're great questions. May I share share another big one for your listeners? I think they're really going to like it. It might be my favorite one. What's that? This has to do with the estate tax. Okay, Buck? So anyone who's $11 million net worth and single, anything above that, they're going to get hit with the death tax. It's called the estate tax. Okay? Uh The 1031 only solves uh, stepped up basis and it only solves tax deferral, but it doesn't solve the death tax, which is separate. Now, if you're married, it's $22 million. So let's imagine a buck, one of your listeners worth $52 million of which 22 million is exempt. That $30 million, if it passes into the estate and it's still inside the estate, it's going to be hit with 40% tax. So the deferred sales trust can solve that. We can sell, move the funds into the deferred sales trust and then simultaneously move it outside of the taxable estate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very powerful, very powerful way to help save your heirs 40%. Yeah. Yeah, and we call that uh, tax the the dumb tax. By the way, if you're <laughs> that that might be the dumbest tax, right? If you can't the dumb tax the estate the estate tax because if you're not smart enough to do some asset protection before uh, or some estate planning uh, beforehand, and you're worth that much money, then you clarify. Most of your listeners are doing the estate planning, but they're doing small amounts and they're they're exhausting their exemptions. Right. Well, we can take literally a $30 million apartment complex and then one transaction, move it all outside of the taxable estate. Right. Right. Okay? So we yeah. can do it. No one else can do it, do it like we do it when, it when it's all one big swoop, as well as the tax deferral, as well, the capital gains tax deferral, as well as the ability to get, to get liquid and live off the interest. Right. So those are, that's kind of our, our unique, our unique pitch there. So the one last question that everybody will say, why didn't you ask if I don't, is how much does it cost for something like this? Because obviously that has to... Millions. No, no, no. We try to keep our fees as low as we can, Buck. Um, you know, your average trustee, if you hire a trustee to do something, they're one and one and a half percent. Our company, we charge about a half of one percent, about 50 basis points. If you just stay with a financial advisor, if you go back into real estate, commercial real estate of that 80%, you'd be charged about 1%. 1%. Now it's an annual recurring fee, okay? Remember, uh, and I maybe didn't mention, but the trustee must be in it for business purpose, must be able to make a profit. So that's part of that. Uh, The other fees, the financial advisor, that's recurring. And they're going to charge somewhere between 50 basis points and a point. So that's kind of how I got to that 6.5%. I said, you earn eight and hopefully net 6.5, right? Right. Uh, The last fee is the one-time fee to the tax attorney. And that's 1.5% on the first million and 1.25 on the second or anything above that. So let's imagine it was a $3 million deal. It'd be 15,000 on the first million. And then it'd be 1.25% on the next 2 million left over. That includes audit defense. And that also includes uh, for the life of the trust, the legal and tax structure um, of the, of the trust. And, and as a reminder, over 3000 of these have been closed. We've already blazed the trail. We've survived 14 no-change IRS audits. One of the biggest deals was over was 125 million that was audited as well. They've had formal formal audits of, of 
of the law firm and the structure. So we've blazed the trail buck. That's the one thing I want to give you guys, your listeners, as much confidence as I can give in regards to, we're not asking someone to try something new. It's new in the sense that it's, they haven't heard of it, but the IRS tax code goes back to the 1920s. So this is over a 90 year old tax law. Just most people don't think about an installment sale in this way. They really only ever think about the 1031. So we want to bring both strategies, see what works best for you, empower you with the strategies. So again, you can create and preserve more wealth. How do we get in touch? Yeah, so uh, Bigger Pockets, uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, any of those. Just search Capital Gains Tax Solutions. Um, and then CapitalGainsTaxSolutions.com is the website. Add me uh, uh, as your friend or like our page. And I try to just put out educational content. Um, and, uh, and then search deferred sales trust. I've been on a number of podcasts too. Fantastic, man. Well, I appreciate your, uh, your giving us all this information and, uh, hopefully we'll have you back sometime. It's my pleasure, Buck. Thanks so much for having me. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. You know, I hope you enjoyed the show. It's good to hear about different tax deferment strategies, right? I mean, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I really don't know. My advice would be to speak with your team about which one would make the most sense for your particular situation. It's good to have like some team members that, um, that you really trust on this, you know, take a few different uh, strategies, run them by them. For me, uh, as, uh, as Tom Wheelwright mentioned a couple shows back, he's sort of the guy I go to cause he's a, you know, he's a generalist too. He's very smart and it's good to have some people to run those ideas behind and, and um, see which one's best for you. Um, Anyway, I uh, also want to point out, uh, at least for the next couple of years, that one option that we didn't really talk about uh, for capital gains, especially you know passive capital gains, is to um, is to simply offset those capital gains potentially by using an investment with something with bonus depreciation. So here's an example, and again, I'm not a tax professional, so if I get this a little bit wrong, then you know don't blame me. But, um, you know, use Tom or somebody else from WealthAbility. But if you had a property that you sold from which you were collecting passive income uh, for a while, those gains, in theory, uh, would be considered passive. So in that case, if, you know, you could potentially offset those gains by investing into something that offers bonus depreciation. Now, we use bonus depreciation in all of our investor club multifamily offerings uh, and the K-1 you get in the first year can be pretty substantial. They probably average, I don't know, somewhere between 60, 70%. We have one this year, which we designed specifically to hit a very high number. Um, and that deduction will be probably about 90% of the initial um, investment. So in other words, if you invested like 90,000, we're expecting you to get a K-1 um, of negative 90,000 or better that you can use against other passive gains. So that's just another option. And it's certainly one that allows you more control and is a little bit easier to institute. And if you can rack up these bonus depreciation numbers, like I know a lot of you in Investor Club are doing, it really gives you a lot of flexibility uh, for these kinds of events. The bottom line is uh, there's lots of potential strategies out there. And if you're in a situation where you're gonna have a liquidity event, make sure you get some good advice because it is a time where you really should be leaning heavily on uh, the support the support structure and advisors that you have around you. If you are in Wealth Formula Network, for example, that would be a very good way to talk about this. There are people in Wealth Formula Network who have gone through these liquidity events, 1031 exchange for real estate, commercial real estate for businesses, et cetera. Um, if you're interested in Wealth Formula Network, by the way, that is our private group go to wealthformularoadmap.com. It starts out with a course, but it really, uh, I think the value of it really uh, significantly continues to give, uh, give value in the form of a biweekly uh, Zoom video call with our group and also a, um, uh, a Facebook group and, and uh, online portal. So that's it for me this week uh, on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.
Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.